Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 33, the diagnostic accuracy of PET CT scan of the head, neck, and chest for giant cell arteritis, the double-blinded giant cell arteritis and PET scan study. Basically, this is a great opportunity to talk about the diagnostic utility of PET scanning in giant cell arteritis. This study was published in Arthritis and Rheumatology over the past week, so it's a 2009 paper. Now, I decided to talk about this paper because came up on my Twitter feed. It was an interesting paper that I tweeted out. And also, I have a lot of drug studies coming up, and I'm kind of getting bored of them. So I decided that it'd be fun to talk about this instead. Now, I'm currently a faculty preceptor for the evidence-based medicine class at Northwestern. And in the class, I always encourage my students not to just read the abstract. Abstracts can be incredibly misleading, and this paper was a perfect example of that. In the conclusion, they say, the high diagnostic accuracy of this PET-CT protocol would support its use as a first-line test for GCA. The negative predictive value of 98% indicates particular utility in ruling out the condition in lower-risk patients. PET-CT had benefit over temporal artery biopsy in detecting vasculitis mimics and aortitis. That sounds great. And let's lead with the headline number, 98% negative predictive value. 98% is always a good thing. You want a 98% in school, and I think we're all conditioned to see that number and say, hey, that's basically perfect. Before we just blindly accept that, what is the negative predictive value? Well, it tells you, if my patient tests negative for this, what are the chances that they'll have disease? So in this case, what the authors are suggesting is that a patient who has a negative PET has a 98% chance of not having giant cell arteritis. Again, that sounds great. When you have a negative predictive value, you can just take one minus negative predictive value, and that gives you the rate of false negatives. So in this case, the rate of false negatives by PET scanning is only 2%. Again, that sounds like a phenomenal test. Let's go on, and we'll see why that's just not the case. The authors tackled this for laudable reasons. Giant cell arteritis is tough to diagnose. The presenting features of giant cell arteritis are essentially headaches, fevers, fatigue, and maybe some jaw tenderness, which are symptoms that pretty much anyone over the age of 50 has. It can be pretty challenging when you suspect everyone to really hone in on who actually has giant cell arteritis. Consequently, we're always looking for another way to diagnose them. Ultrasound has become especially popular lately because it's non-invasive, but the previous diagnostic gold standard has been temporal artery biopsy. Finding classic findings on a temporal artery biopsy essentially confirms the diagnosis of giant cell arteritis. However, it is not a very sensitive test. In the TABL study, for instance, the false negative rate by a temporal artery biopsy was 61%. That's terrible. That means three out of five patients who had giant cell arteritis and underwent a biopsy wound up not having a positive temporal artery biopsy. So in that sense, the temporal artery biopsy is a good confirmatory test, but a pretty poor test for ruling things out. What the authors in this study decided to do was try to see if PET-CT scanning could be used to rule out giant cell arteritis. If it could, that would be a very useful diagnostic modality. So to tackle this question, they performed a prospective cross-sectional cohort study in the Royal North Shore Hospital of Australia through 2016 to 2018. Patients who got into the study were newly suspected of having GCA. They were over 50, they met the 1990 ACR criteria for GCA, and they had to have received less than 72 hours of corticosteroids. 
They also had to be scheduled for a temporal artery biopsy because the authors intended to compare this to PET scanning. PET scans were performed prior to temporal artery biopsy, and an experienced nuclear medicine physicians read them. Now, interestingly, and a strength of the study is that the nuclear medicine physicians were blinded to all clinical imaging and biopsy data. I like that. The primary outcome was a subjective global assessment of the scan as positive or negative. Straightforward, I also like that. Now, whenever you see a study where we're talking about diagnosis, the most important thing is the gold standard. So if we're comparing the ability of PET to diagnose something, the question is, compared to what? And in this case, their reference standard was clinically guided unilateral temporal artery biopsy. Now, that's kind of unfortunate. Because as I just told you, temporal artery biopsy is not a great way to diagnose transverse arteritis. In their defense, temporal artery biopsy has a high specificity. If you see giant arteritis on a temporal artery biopsy, you're confident the patients have it. So comparing that as the gold standard of patients who actually have the diagnosis is not totally unreasonable. The problem is that you're not going to get very many patients. Another problem is that they used unilateral temporal artery biopsy. They could have used bilateral, they would have gotten a little more yield, though to be honest, I'm not often doing that anymore. Pathologists were blinded to the PET-CT vascular findings, which is good, but not to clinical details. Again, that's a little bit dicey. I can see why they're doing it, because they really want to make sure the pathologists get this right, but it's a little suspect. Now, they defined a positive biopsy as having inflammation through one or more layers of the main artery wall. That's kind of a classic GCA finding. They excluded vasovasorum or periadventitional small vessel vasculitis. A lot of people consider that to be giant cell arteritis. We don't know exactly what to do with those, but it's not fair to say that that's negative, which is what they did here. Now, understanding these limitations, the authors went on to say that they're going to have a second reference test, and that was clinical diagnosis. And they did this at six months. Yay, I like that a lot. Why do I like that? Well, in rheumatology, a lot of the time, time really matters. You don't always know the diagnosis your first visit, but six months into the visit, when the patient has had persistently elevated ESR and they've now developed jaw claudication and they have PMR leg symptoms, all of a sudden you become pretty convinced of what's going on. So I really like A, that they also included clinical diagnosis, and B, that they used it not at the time of diagnosis, but six months out when things are more clear. Interestingly, Patients, clinicians, and reviewers were blinded to the PET-CT vascular findings to make sure that these didn't influence the diagnosis. I like that. Obviously, people did know about the findings on the temporal artery biopsy. Now, the authors initially assumed that they'd have a 50% rate of positive temporal artery biopsies in their sample. Unfortunately, they didn't get anywhere close to that. They calculated they would need 60 patients to attain their power, but they were only getting 20% positive temporal artery biopsies. That means that they would have to get 170 patients to actually reach a 10% error rate. And they said, eh, we just can't do that. And they ended the study early. This is a very, very important issue. I'll go on to discuss that in just a minute. So what were the results? 58 patients had a temporal artery biopsy performed about four days after the PET-CT. So they were pretty close. 95% of patients completed six-month follow-up. Excellent work. The median age was 69 years and 70% were female. 91% had headache, 33% PMR, 33% vision changes, 30% claudication. This is all about normal. Patients had elevated inflammatory markers. 56 had a unilateral temporary biopsy. All pretty reasonable. Now, this is where things start to become problematic. 
Of those 56 patients, 21% had mural inflammation consistent with GCA. So that's the beginning of their problem. They had a lower rate of positive temporal artery biopsy than expected. Making this even more complicated, 19% had vasovasorum or periadventitional small vessel vasculitis. Now, I think they missed out on an opportunity here to analyze these people too, because I think some of those people might actually have giant cell arteritis. Clinically, 33% of patients wound up being diagnosed with GCA. So you can see that that temporal artery biopsy wasn't catching all the patients. Inflammatory markers were highest for these patients who had positive GCA. So let's talk about what they actually found. 11 of 12 patients with a positive temporal artery biopsy had a positive PET scan, and 39 of 46 patients with a negative temporal artery biopsy had a negative PET scan. From this, they calculated a sensitivity of 92%, a specificity of 85%, and a negative predictive value of 98%. Remember, these are the numbers that you saw in the abstract that were so, so impressive. Let's demystify the negative predictive value, though. So the negative predictive value is just the true negatives over the true negatives plus the false negatives. In this case, that is 1 divided by 40. That's all there is to this. So why is this problematic? Well, there are only 12 patients total in that group who had a positive temporal artery biopsy. Of those 12 patients, you could easily imagine that they may have just gotten lucky. So say instead of 11 true positives and 1 false negative, say they had eight true positives, and four false negatives. All of a sudden, your super exciting negative predictive value of 98% drops to 89%. More importantly, like I said, temporal artery biopsy is not the perfect diagnostic modality. Clinical diagnosis isn't either, but I think it's a more appropriate way to answer this question. So let's go to clinical diagnosis. So for clinical diagnosis, 21 patients had a clinical diagnosis and 33 were clinically negative. Of those 21 patients who were clinically positive for disease, PET correctly identified 15 and incorrectly identified 6 of them. That's not quite as good, right? Now PET had the same number of true negatives, of 39, so you can calculate a negative predictive value for a clinical diagnosis, and all of a sudden PET doesn't look quite so good. And you only have a negative predictive value of 87%. Like I said earlier, if you have a negative predictive value, the false negative rate is just 1 minus that, so in this case, 13% of patients were false negatives. So already, PET has kind of fallen off of its pedestal to where using PET to rule out diagnosis. In this cohort, 1 in 10 patients is going to be falsely ruled out as negative when they actually have giant cell arteritis. Now, this is an important concept in using these tests properly. The negative predictive value is highly dependent on the prevalence of disease. Now I can calculate the prevalence of disease in this study because we know that there are 21 patients who had a clinical diagnosis of GCA and 33 who did not have a clinical diagnosis of GCA. So the prevalence is 21 divided by 54 or there's a 39% prevalence of disease. 39% of patients in this study had disease. What if instead of 39%, the prevalence was 80%? So say you have a patient who you are pretty confident has GCA they have a relatively high pretest probability, and in your head you'd say, you know, if I saw five patients like this, I think four of them would have GCA and one of them wouldn't. Pretest probability of disease is 80% instead of, in this study, 39%. The authors helpfully gave us the sensitivity and specificity so we can actually calculate a new negative predictive value given this hypothetical situation where the pretest probability of disease was higher. 
It's pretty straightforward. So if the prevalence of disease is 80%, let's imagine we had 100 patients. 80 of them will have disease, 20 of them will not have disease, right? Because we know the sensitivity at 71%, we know the true negative rate. Sensitivity is just a synonym for the true negative rate. So we can multiply 71% by 80, and we get 57 patients who would be true positives in this scenario. If 57 patients are true positives, 23 patients will be false negatives. That means in 23 cases, the patient would have GCA, but PET would tell us that they don't. We can do the same thing for specificity, which is the true negative rate. And from that, we can concoct a little Punnett square and recalculate the negative predictive values in our new scenario. So what are the negative predictive values in our new scenario? Well, the true negatives are now 18 out of the 20 patients who are actually negative, and the false negatives are the 23 we just said. So the negative predictive value in this case will be 18 divided by 43, which gives you a result or negative predictive value of 44%. That is not good. That means that if you really think your patient has giant arthritis and you do a PET scan and it comes back negative, that test is really just a flip of a coin. And worse, more often than not, it will tell you your patient doesn't have giant cell arthritis when they actually do. The false negative rate in this case is just 1 minus 0.44 or 56%. To be totally fair, I've obviously stacked the decks against PET scanning here. We use the clinical diagnosis, and I understand the arguments for using temporal artery biopsy instead. And I inflated the prevalence of disease to 80%. Often when we're using this test, we're not using it in a high pretest probability scenario, we're using it in a low pretest probability scenario. And if you do the same calculation in that situation, it actually performs pretty well. So what's my point? Well, PET-CT, like any test, is not perfect. It's a good test for ruling out disease in a low pretest probability scenario. It's helpful in a scenario where you have a middling pretest probability, but you're still going to have a number of false negatives. And in a situation where you relatively strongly suspect your patient of having giant cell arteritis, a negative PET-CT scan in no way rules out giant cell arteritis. This isn't me putting some fancy spin on things, it's honestly just math. Now before I leave, I should mention one other interesting finding of this paper. As it turns out, if you subject a bunch of people with a median age of 70 years old to PET scanning, you're going to find some junk. So one in five patients had a clinically relevant incidental finding on PET-CT. That included some mundane things like seven acute infections, like sinusitis, pneumonia, but it included five cancers, four lung cancers and one thyroid cancer. That's almost a 10% rate of random cancer in these people. This isn't like prostate cancer either. This is lung cancer. These people might want to get on treatment for that. As in the low-dose CT scanning study that we did uh, for screening of lung cancer and smokers, if you do really sensitive testing of people's lungs, you're going to find some things. Whether or not that's a good thing remains to be seen, but I would put it into the benefit category, at least at this point. So how do we bring this all together? You know, I'll be honest, even though I'm being kind of critical of this paper, I'm a big supporter of PET scanning and giant cell arteritis. I just don't think it's an easy disease to rule out, and adding PET scanning where I can to my treatment algorithms I think is pretty helpful. Now, I have certainly had some negative PET scans in patients for whom I am sure have giant cell arteritis, but more often than not, I've found it to be a pretty useful modality. Two things that I haven't discussed yet that should be noted. Number one is that PET scanning is pretty expensive. I mean, this is many, many, many thousands of dollars. 
A lot of insurance won't cover it, and I'm not totally sure that they should. It'd be an incredibly expensive thing to roll out on a large scale. The second thing is that it's actually a fair bit of radiation. So this isn't necessarily a totally benign test for a patient to undergo. That being said, in some patients, I do think that there's a role for PET scanning. And I think that this paper does demonstrate that it's good for ruling out disease, especially in a low or moderate pretest probability. I don't think it's 98% good, but I think it's better than a lot of the alternatives. I hope that was interesting for everybody. Be sure to follow me at ebroom. Give me feedback on the podcast. And be sure to share the podcast with all of your friends. Thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you again next week. Bye.